Well, brothers and sisters, most of us relate on a daily basis to unbelieving non-Christian people, don't we? Uh, we do so in our extended families. We have unbelievers in our neighborhood uh, with whom we have contact. Uh, we meet unbelievers when we're out shopping, perhaps when we're traveling, as we were recently crossing the country uh, to go to California. And when, maybe when we're involved in various community activities, we are often rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. Should we not want all of our interactions with unbelievers, if even in a small way, to count for the gospel? Shouldn't we? But I ask this question rhetorically. Do you always say the right thing at the right time, in the right way, to the unbelievers with whom you cross paths? I fear that we don't. Sometimes we don't speak as forthrightly about the Lord to unbelievers as we should. We are silent when we ought to speak. At other times, we may speak something about the Lord or the gospel, but we come away and we're convicted, you know, that was, that was kind of weak. That was kind of compromised. At other times, we might come on so strong that we kind of blow them out of the water and we speak in a way that comes on too strong and is insensitive or untimely. We don't always get it right. Well, there's a directive in Scripture, in one of Paul's letters, that relates to this. In Colossians 4, 5, and 6, the apostle says to the Colossian church, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. He's talking about outsiders, those who are unbelievers. And we are called to conduct ourselves wisely toward them, especially in our speech. Our speech is to be wise, gracious speech, speaking the truth in love and in a timely way. Well, friends, in this area, as in all areas, our Lord Jesus Christ is our perfect example. Unlike us, he always did the right thing and said the right thing in the right way at the right time, even to the many unbelievers with whom he interacted. He is our perfect pattern of interpersonal and relational wisdom. And we're going to see an example of it in our study this morning. We return again to Mark chapter 11, to which I ask you to turn. And I remind you that it is our Lord's last life, last week of mortal life on earth. Of course, he will continue resurrected for some days, but it is his last week of mortal life on earth. On the Sunday prior to his death, which was on Friday, he made that grand entrance into Jerusalem. Grand in the sense that he rode into Jerusalem when pilgrims walk into Jerusalem. You don't ride into Jerusalem for the feast, you walk. He rode. But he rode in a paradoxically humble way because he didn't come riding in on a white stallion. He came riding, but on a donkey. And that says something about the kind of kingdom he came to bring. Oh, he came to the acclaim and the shouts and the hosannas of the multitude. But he was not the king they were expecting. They were expecting a military political conqueror who would conquer the Romans. The fact that he rode in indicates he is a king. But the fact that he rode in on a donkey indicates he was a different kind of king. He was a king who would come in humbly to bring a spiritual kingdom, kingdom of salvation. 
and indicative of the kind of kingdom he came to bring, when he arrives in the city, what does he do on the very next day? He goes into the temple. He's not concerned so much about Roman politics. He's concerned about religion. And he comes into the temple and he purges it of the commercial activity that was going on there, that was polluting it, contrary to his father's intentions for that place. Now, nobody tried to stop him, but the religious leaders showed their revulsion for what he did by what we read in Mark eleven eighteen. The chief priests and the scribes heard this. They heard what he did and what he said, and they began seeking how to destroy him. We get the sense that they will be back. And so on the very next day, Tuesday, when Jesus is once again in the temple, the Jewish leaders confront him. And what we're going to see this morning is the first of several attempts to verbally trap Jesus to try to turn the people against him. And from this scenario we will see this morning, we will get a clear picture, first of all, of the unbelieving heart of the natural man, but we will also have a beautiful display of the consummate wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text is 11, 27 to 33. Follow as I read. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? In Mark comments, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We're going to see the consummate wisdom of our Lord Jesus. We'll look at this under three headings. We're going to look at the official interrogation, the wise counter-interrogation by Jesus, and then the resolution of the encounter. First of all, the official interrogation. What was the occasion of these men coming and questioning Jesus. Well, it says they came again to Jerusalem as he was walking in the temple. Matthew's version says that he was teaching. Luke says he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel when they confronted him. It appears that Jesus was in the temple and he was doing some peripatetic teaching. You know what that is? That's where you walk around and teach. Maybe he was walking around teaching this group, walking over here teaching that group, walking over here teaching that group, doing some peripatetic teaching. Now, did they interrupt his teaching? Probably not. They were probably polite enough to wait until a break in the teaching. That was the occasion of, the, of his question. He's, he's in the temple teaching when they confront him with this question. But what was the delegation that questioned him? Well, there are three distinct groups that are mentioned. The chief priests, these would be those from the family of the ruling high priest, maybe some former high priests. These would have been the Sadducees. They were the more liberal faction of the Sanhedrin, the, the religious Jews who were the liberals, the Sadducees. Uh, then there were the scribes. Those were the men who studied, interpreted, and taught the law, both in the temple and in the synagogues. 
The scribes would have been made up mainly of Pharisees. They would have been the more conservative party. And then the elders are mentioned. The eldership began in Old Testament times as those who were tribal leaders. In the time of Jesus, the elders of Israel were judges in the various cities and towns. The ones spoken of here were part of the Sanhedrin. They were probably some of the more prominent local elders. So these three groups, the um, chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, made up that austere body of of the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, 71 men. And um, it was likely an official delegation sent by the Sanhedrin to deal with Jesus. And they probably brought some of their, sent some of their sharpest men, some of the, the more heavyweights, to deal with this rogue rabbi Jesus. Now, what was the provocation behind their questioning? What, what provoked the confrontation? Well, our text says in verse 28, that they were questioning his authority to do these things. What were the things that provoked them that Jesus was doing? Well, I think we could answer that in several ways. No doubt the teaching he was doing at that very time. Having the audacity to come into the Jewish temple and teach. Who do you think you are doing this teaching in the temple? No doubt it had in mind what he had done the previous day. He had made a big scene in the temple. He overturned the tables. He drove out the money changers. Oh, that provoked their wrath. Who gave you the authority to do that? And probably as well, they had in mind, who gave you the authority to ride in to Jerusalem on a donkey to the acclaim of the multitudes? Now, Jesus didn't organize that rally, but he didn't stop it either. He let it happen. In fact, when he was in the temple and the children were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, he actually defended it, as Matthew tells us, by saying, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for yourself. They were, they were indignant over the fact that Jesus had allowed that praise to be received by him when he came into the temple. And when it says these things that provoke their question, It may have in view all of Jesus' ministry, all of the miracles he had been working, all of the authoritative teaching he had been doing from the beginning. That's what provoked them to ask this question. What was their actual question? It was a question about his authority. Again, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? It is noteworthy that they were not challenging his character nor were they challenging the content of his teaching. Those things were unassailable. Those things were beyond reproach. Remember at some other point, he stands before his enemies and says, which of you convicts me of sin? And no one could answer. His character was above reproach. His teaching was above reproach. So they attack his authority because they're thinking, ah, this is his Achilles heel. This is the chink in his armor. By what authority are you doing this? Why did they go after that? Well, because authority was very important in Judaism, in the Judaism of Jesus' day. The whole system of rabbinism, the rabbis, was based on on the tradition of the rabbis. The rabbis were the official teachers. And any discussion about any religious matter would be settled by the opinion of such and such a rabbi. Rabbi so-and-so says... And that would be the end of the matter. Kind of reminds me when I was active in Amish ministry, and I had the opportunity to talk to a number of Amish 
ministers and bishops over the years. You know what would end all discussion? It's not our way. Well, the, the Bible says it's not our way. End of discussion. Doesn't matter what the Bible says, it wasn't their way. And matters in Judaism were decided by the tradition of the elders or the, the, the rabbis. And in order to um, be a rabbi, you had to go through official training and formal ordination. And the words of the rabbis were to be believed. But Jesus had none of those credentials. He was not an approved, ordained rabbi in the system of first century Judaism. So they thought, ah, here's this point of weakness. Here's our best chance of exposing and embarrassing and discrediting Jesus in the eyes of the people. He doesn't have any authority. Now, finally, under this first point, what, what was the motivation in their questioning? Well, as already intimated, it was a malicious motivation. We read earlier that the chief priests and scribes were so incensed by what he did in the temple that they were seeking to destroy him. You see, these Jewish leaders hated Jesus. And they had a fixed opinion of him from early on. Way back in Mark chapter 3, we read, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. They were already convinced that he was of the devil. Earlier in that same chapter, when Jesus is in the synagogue, ready to heal a man with a withered hand, and he looks at those leaders with, he looks at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Their hearts were hardened against Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, and they had not become any softer. They had only intensified in their hostility and hatred of Jesus. So what motivated the question? nothing but hostility and malice toward Jesus. And so with hate-filled, murderous hearts toward Jesus, they confront him. Now, in one sense, we could say it was their job. They were the gatekeepers. They were to vet the credentials of would-be teachers. That was their job. But in Jesus' case, they were not objectively seeking information. Their minds were already made up. They were only looking for some grounds to accuse him, to turn the people against him. And so their question was a snare. If he claimed that he had no human authority, it was entrenched in the minds of the people that you needed to be an official, approved, and ordained rabbi. Then they thought if he, if he claimed no human authority, then perhaps the crowd would turn against him. But if he claimed that his authority was from God and from heaven, well, they hoped that they would catch him on the, on the charge of blasphemy, claiming for himself rights that belonged only to God. So the interrogation of Jesus on this Tuesday after the triumphal entrance is a hate-filled, malicious snare framed by his sworn enemies who had finally mustered up the courage to confront him. But now let's look at the wise counter-interrogation, verses 29 and 30. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. First, we'll consider the question and then the intention behind it. The question. 
Apparently, it was not uncommon in rabbinic circles to answer a question with a question. And as we'll see, Jesus does this with, with consummate wisdom and skill. But before we consider the wisdom, I want to take note of the authority with which Jesus answers the question. When it says in verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. The word ask in the Greek is the word erotao. And the Greek scholar Richard Trench says about this word erotao, it never signifies to ask, but only to interrogate. And it implies that he who asks stands on a footing of equality with him from whom the question is asked. As a king with a king, or if not of equality, a footing of familiarity as lends authority to the request. The point is, Jesus is not intimidated when he was asked about his authority. But in answer, he actually asserts his authority. He takes the high ground in his counter-interrogation. It's as if to say, you have no right to interrogate me. I am not answerable to you, but you are answerable to me. And the authority with which he even answers it is confirmed by the way he ends with the command, answer me. Jesus is not intimidated by these religious leaders. In fact, he takes the high ground. And when questioned about his authority, he actually asserts his authority. He interrogates them in turn. So the question itself, his counter-interrogation, exudes authority. But what was the intention behind his counter-interrogation? By what authority do you do this? Well, let me ask you a question. The ministry of John, from man or from heaven? What was Jesus intending by his counter-question? Well, I think it's clear that he wasn't seeking to evade an answer. He was seeking to answer the question. How so? Well, we need to understand that there was a vital unity between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. John, of course, was the forerunner to Jesus. He announced the coming of the Messiah. He pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I must decrease, he must increase. I am not worthy to unlatch his sandals. And so John totally approves of and announces as the forerunner, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, in turn, affirms John. He essentially says John has no peer among the prophets. When he says, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. As I said, that doesn't mean that John was the most godly man who ever lived, but he was the pinnacle of the prophetic ministry. He was running the anchor leg of the prophetic ministry. No prophet was greater than John who announced the Messiah not merely to come, but the Messiah who was right in front of him. And so John affirms Jesus as the Lamb of God. Jesus defends John's reputation as the greatest prophet. You see, their ministry was one of mutual recognition of the other's ministry, and the ministry of John and Jesus were in perfect harmony and unity. The unity between the God-ordained forerunner to the Messiah and the God-appointed divine Messiah. And given that unbreakable unity, Jesus was, in effect, answering their question. Do you want to know by what authority I do what I do? Well, let me ask you about John. What do you think of John's ministry? Was it from men or from heaven? Because my ministry and John's are vitally linked together. Do you see that? 
There's a unity and a harmony between us. He pointed to me, and I affirmed him. And whatever you think of John and his ministry and the origin of his ministry, whether from, from men or God, you've got your answer about my ministry. So in effect, Jesus was not being evasive. He was not trying to avoid an answer. He was saying, the way you think about John is the way you think about me. But further, concerning Jesus' intention here, so his intention intention was to not sidestep the question. He was going to answer it. He wasn't evading it. But on the other hand, he answers their question in an indirect way so as to undermine and expose their evil design. It's a bit of a judo move. Are you familiar with judo? Judo is that form of martial arts where you use the, your opponent's momentum against you, against him. Somebody's attacking you, you use his momentum or her momentum to throw him, and so you're using their momentum against them. And Jesus is pu- pulling off a little bit of a judo move here, and in this, he's exemplifying to us the truth of Proverbs 26.5, which says this, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. These men questioning Jesus were fools. And to have allowed them to triumph in their interrogation of him and to give them the information they wanted to spring their trap on him, would have made them wise in their own eyes. And so he answers these fools according to what their folly deserves. They deserve to be frustrated in their plot, to be exposed in their dishonesty. And he answers in a way calculated to do that. Consider the resolution to this encounter. So they interrogate him. By what authority are you doing this? He counter-interrogates them. Let me ask you a question. John's ministry, from men or from heaven? And there we read, beginning of verse 31, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say then, why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? And then Mark breaks in, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I want us to see here the deliberation, the evasion, and the conclusion. The deliberation. These men understood by Jesus' question that they were being put on the horns of a dilemma. And so they're going to explore, so to speak, each horn separately. Well, suppose we say that John's ministry is from heaven, What if we say that? What if we answer in that way? Where will that lead us? Well, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? And then we will find ourselves open to the charge of unbelief. And we'll get impaled on that horn. But maybe we shouldn't do that. But now let's examine the other horn. What if we say, well, John's ministry is from men. And then Mark doesn't even finish the thought because He gives his commentary that they feared the people because the people believed that John was a real heaven-sent prophet. And so they realized, well, I don't want to be on the horn of this dilemma, and, and this horn is just as sharp as the second horn. We don't want to get impaled on that. And so they see the dilemma that they are in. If they say it's of men, then the people who believed he was from God would turn against them. And rather than the people turning against Jesus, the people end up turning against them. 
So they're on the horns of this dilemma, and neither one is a good choice. So that's the deliberation, and now the evasion. How do they answer? We don't know. Friends, it was a shameful answer. It was a disgraceful surrender. As members of the Sanhedrin, it was their duty to know. Isn't that why they were there interrogating Jesus? They're vetting Jesus. We want to know, do you have the legitimate credentials, ostensibly, right? It's our job to check out credentials, to vet people. We're the, the gatekeepers here of the, the religious community. What do you mean you don't know? John comes on the scene attracting thousands of people, calling them to repent, pointing to a certain man as the Lamb of God who takes away sin, and you don't know who he is or where he's from? It was so dishonest. They were the authorities. They were the ones who were supposed to know. But it was the best they could do. They're kind of like a warship on the, on the high seas, attacking another warship, hoping to sink it. But this warship takes so many hits that it itself is sinking. And the sailors have all they can do to escape with their lives. They were intending to sink Jesus' ship, but now they're getting counterattacked, and they have all they can do to escape without harm. Their dishonesty is obvious. They did know. In their heart of hearts, they knew that John was from God. In their heart of hearts. And what they should have done is owned that John was of God, and the one he pointed to was of God, and we need to repent. And believe in not only John, but the one he pointed to and bow before Jesus as their Messiah. That would have been the most honest thing to do. But even if they were suppressing that truth and believing that John was not from God, it would have been more honest to say, we don't think he was from God. They certainly weren't acting as though John was from God. When John was arrested by Herod, they did nothing to protect him. For them, it was good riddance. Let's get rid of this guy. The most honest thing would have been to own John was of, of God. Jesus is of God. We've been wrong. We repent. We believe. The next most honest thing would have been to be honest and truthful about the way they were acting. No, we, didn't, we have not regarded John as from God. We did nothing to protect him. At least that would have been honest. But what is the conclusion of the matter? They said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The enemies of Jesus had accepted his counter question as a legitimate question. And um, when they refused to commit themselves to an answer, in effect, that got Jesus off the hook. You're not going to answer me? I have no moral duty to answer you. The conclusion is Jesus comes out as the moral victor. His enemies are foiled, and humiliated, but I assure you they will be back. So let's pull some lessons from, from this scenario. First of three, there's an inferred assertion of the divine authority of Jesus Christ. There is an inferred assertion here of the divine authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus' ministry and that of John were bound up together. And Jesus gives them two options as to John's ministry. Was it of men or was it from heaven? 
Was it of men or was it of God? And in a sense, that's the key question about Jesus' ministry. And I think here, brothers and sisters, there's a powerful evangelistic tool that we can use. I used it on the flight out to California. I used it on the flight back, sitting next to a dear Catholic lady that I got to talk to, who at the end was committed to reading her Bible, which she had not read. I hope she does. And it's this, to present unbelievers with this option, the same option Jesus gave these Jewish leaders about John. Is Jesus of men or of heaven? What about it? Many people will say, oh, well, we don't believe Jesus is God or the Son of God, but we believe he was a good man, a good teacher, at which point we need to say, wait a minute. That's not a viable option. Are you aware that Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh? Are you aware that Jesus claimed to be the only way to God? He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Any man who said that, and it wasn't true, is not a good man. He may be a liar. You think Jesus was a liar? Everything about his ministry exudes truthfulness. He hated hypocrisy. His worst enemies were hypocrites. His true followers are people who walk in the truth. They love the truth, even to their own hurt. It doesn't make sense that Jesus was a deliberate liar. Maybe he was a lunatic. He really thought he was who he said he was, but he was just deranged. Follow that out. Does Jesus' life and ministry and conduct display that of a deranged lunatic? No. Perfect mental balance, even keeledness, even under tremendous pressure. He is a picture of mental health, and his true followers are a picture of sound, stable mental health. Nothing about Jesus says he was a lunatic. Ah, here's another option, a legend. I like Davy Crockett, for those of you old enough to remember old Davy Crockett, right? A real man, a real senator, a real Indian fighter. But did he really kill himself a bar when he was only three, as the old song? No. And so there was something made of Davy Crockett beyond what he really was. He was made a legend by his followers. Jesus might have been a good man, but his followers turned him into a legend and claimed things for him that he never did or said. Really? Are you aware that history tells us that 11 of the 12 disciples died as martyrs for Jesus, being willing to be crucified upside down and had their heads lopped off because they were convinced they had seen him risen from the dead? And I tell people, people die for stupid things all the time, but they don't die for things that they know are false. It doesn't make sense that Jesus was a legend. You can't say he's a good man unless you're willing to say he is the God-man and bow down and worship him. So I commend that to you as a powerful evangelistic tool. Obviously, we're not going to convince anyone unless the Spirit of God works in their heart to regenerate them. We understand that. But it doesn't mean that we don't use powerful, rational thought to get people to think, I can't take Jesus as a good man and not the Lord of glory. And so I say there's an inferred assertion here of the divine authority of Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, we also learn some things about the hearts of unbelieving natural man. What was true of these enemies of Jesus are things that are true of all who refuse to come to Jesus. What are some of those things? These men were liars. They lied when they said, we do not know. Deep down, they knew the truth. And even what they were acting upon, that he wasn't of God, they didn't confess. They lied. And frankly, deceit and lying is something that characterizes the human heart by nature. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked, and that is all of us by birth, are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Your little two-year-old tells lies. And he didn't learn it from you. She didn't learn it from you. Ephesians 4.22 says, The old self that we once were is corrupted with the lusts of deceit. The life of the natural man into which state we are all born is a life of deceit and lying. From the beginning, we lie. We lie to ourselves about ourselves. I'm really not that bad. We lie to ourselves about God. God is not so holy that I can't meet his standard. And we lie to ourselves about the way we think we can be made right with God. I think I can be good enough, do enough. All those are lies. We are characterized by deceit. And why did these men lie? The same reason that Many unbelievers lie. They feared man. The text says they were afraid of the multitude. We don't want to tell the truth because we're afraid of the people. And the Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. And if you are an unbeliever this morning, a large part of that might be because you're afraid of what other people will think if you commit to Jesus Christ. Following Jesus, you have to pay a price. The Bible says the world will hate you. Jesus said the world will hate you, and you may lose friends if you follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said to these same Jewish leaders at one point, recorded in John 5, how can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? If you're not a believer, if you are ever to become a believer, one thing has to be overcome, and that is this fear of man. You've got to be more concerned with what God knows about you than what other people think. What other people think about you needs to become like zero, nothing, compared to what God knows about you. And you need to fear God more than you need to fear other people. But going more deeply still, why did they fear man? The reason most people fear man Because at bottom, we love ourselves more than we love God. They were protecting themselves. And the Bible says, by nature, we love ourselves. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf, indicating that before we come to Christ, we all live for ourselves. Self-love is our bottom line idol. And if you're ever to come to Christ, you must repudiate that self-centered life of independence from God, that life by which you, you follow your will, follow your rules, and you live for your own pleasure and your own glory rather than God's. That life has to be forsaken. You are not made to worship yourself. 
You were made to worship the God who made you to know him and love him and serve him and obey him. And only in him will you be truly fulfilled and happy. And one final application. We see in this narrative the perfect and beautiful wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of wisdom. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell in him. And in this particular context, we see his wisdom in responding to foolish men. Again, I cited earlier Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he might that he not be wise in his own eyes. Similarly, in another place, you remember, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls in front of swine. Don't give what is holy to dogs, lest they turn again and attack you. Trample them under their feet and then turn again and attack you. A fool is described in this way. Psalm 14.1, he says there is no God. Psalm 10, 8 through 10, he does not receive commands, but he babbles. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He's a know-it-all. Proverbs 17, 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. He doesn't accept rebuke or correction. Proverbs 18, 2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. He doesn't listen. Proverbs 20, verse 3, keeping away from stripes from strife, is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. He's quarrelsome. He's not reasonable. And here's one I love, Proverbs 29.9. When a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs, and there is no rest. Trying to have a rational conversation. Either rages in anger or laughs you to scorn. Well, the men that Jesus was dealing with were full-orbed biblical fools, They did not want the truth. They hated the truth. And Jesus did not give it to them in a straightforward way. And in that, he is an example of wisdom to us. Now, as I close, let me say that we need to be very careful before we label someone a biblical fool. It's a strong word. Um, Our general rule is to share the gospel freely and openly with, with almost anybody. But occasionally you meet, some, so you meet somebody who fits the profile of the biblical fool. Have you met some who fit that profile? They're trying to reason and they either rage or they laugh in scorn. Well, I think most of us have. When we do, we need to be like Jesus. Some do not deserve to be given the truth straightforwardly for the sake of the truth. Because they will trample the truth underfoot and then turn again and attack you. They will only mock and reproach and malign. It seems that when people cease to dialogue rationally about the truth that you are presenting, when they either rage or laugh to scorn, that may be the time to not lay the precious pearls of God's truth in front of them. At least not until a later time. Not every fool is a reprobate fool. People have been saved out of folly. And it may be a later time, but at least at that time, follow the wisdom of your Lord. Don't cast your, the precious pearls of gospel truth in front of people who only trample them under their feet and attack you. Those are his words. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, oh, we look at you, and indeed, you are full of wisdom and knowledge. We know only a fraction. Open our eyes to see more of your beautiful, consummate wisdom in all of your ways, and help us to become more like you. We ask in your name. 